Um, but it's a joy to be here with you all. And uh, again, thank you for the invitation. Um, as Nick had mentioned earlier, uh, both uh, my girlfriend Mary and I and several others are actually planting a church uh, plant down in downtown Lynchburg. Uh, actually, right at my house, which is a little fun to have a house church, right? We're looking for a building, of course, in due time. But in the meantime, we're gathering for worship there in the evenings on Sunday. And so uh, the church is called City Light EPC. Uh, we're looking forward to just uh, seeing what the Lord does as uh, our friends and neighbors are just, uh, you know, just given the opportunity to actually hear the gospel. Um, there are many people in Lynchburg who have walked away from the faith, to be very blunt. Uh, those who have deconstructed in the popular word today, deconstructionism is a big thing in Lynchburg in many places. And so we're actually looking uh, and hoping that God will use this new church plant uh, as we bring into the EPC to be a blessing to our community, uh, but to especially reach those who have walked away from the faith and uh, those who are, of course, so lost without uh, saving hope in Jesus Christ. So if you think of us in downtown Lynchburg, we would covet your prayers, of course, uh, for City Light EPC. And again, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. Uh, so this morning, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 through 25 this morning. And as you're turning there, you'll probably notice very quickly that this is a very familiar passage. It's the one where Jesus goes into the temple there in Jerusalem and completely cleans house, quite literally. We see right here, though, in our passage, uh, honestly, the anger of Jesus. But it's not just anger without cause. It's anger because he was zealous for the purity of his temple, the place of worship his father's house. And so as a brief introduction to illustrate this idea, I want to share a quick story with you all, this idea of cleaning things. Ready? So a while ago, a good friend of mine at Rivermont Presbyterian there in Lynchburg, where I'm from, a good friend of mine named Pastor Eubank, he had asked me to watch his two-year-old golden retriever named Annabelle. In fact, I was just actually uh, watching Annabelle this past week while they were gone again over Thanksgiving. But a while back, several months ago, uh, he had asked me to watch her over at his house. And that context is very important. Because, see, over at uh, his house, uh, they had these clean white couches there in the living room. And Annabelle was free to just go ahead and jump on them and rest on them. She's a fairly clean golden retriever. Uh, but she and my own dog named Baxter, who's a chocolate lab, are like best of friends. And Mary, you saw this this past week. They just get along so, so well. And so as you can imagine, as I took my own dog over to Brett's house and the two dogs were playing together, they spent the better part of three whole days chasing balls, chasing sticks, chasing each other, chasing each other even more, running outside in the yard and just tackling each other left and right, having the time of their lives for three days. But on day four, the day right before my friend Brett and his wife Denise returned back from their vacation, it rained in Lynchburg. Uh, Nick, you might know this, but when it rains in Lynchburg, it rains. And it might be the same here in Appomattox. I imagine it might be the same weather pattern. But it was a downpour. It was raining all day long, pretty much nonstop. And of course, at some point, I had to let those two dogs out. I mean, just for a few minutes, right? After all, I was thinking in the moment, what harm could just two minutes out in the yard do, right? And I see a couple of heads shaking <laughs> with good reason. 
So when I let those two dogs out, of course, they spent maybe two, three minutes tops going outside, running around. But as soon as they came back inside, you can imagine what happened. <laughs> they came back in and soon they were running off inside the living room, running circles, not outside anymore, but now inside, tracking in all kinds of mud and jumping on Brett's wife's clean white couches, muddying everything in their path, but especially those couches. That was the worst part. Now, as you can probably imagine, faster than I could blink, those two dogs were separated, but the mud had already made its way into the house. And so an hour later, and a long good bath later for both those dogs, <laughs> they were both cleaned up. But as you can imagine, with my friends coming back the very next morning, then the real work began. Not just cleaning up those dogs, but cleaning up those pure white couches. At least they used to be pure white. So I began to feverishly clean my friend's house to the best of my own ability. Well, friends, this morning we have in our passage this morning in John 2, a far greater act of cleansing or cleaning going on here in John 2, 13 and following. See, here we see the very zeal of Jesus for his father's own house utterly consume him, eat away at him, so to speak, to the point where he had to physically remove those figurative dogs from God's holy temple. But friends, this is much more than just a mere cleaning spree that we were about to read of here in our passage. See, this passage is especially relevant for each and every one of us as believers, especially in this day and age, because it proves to us that Jesus, our Savior, is so zealous for every single one of us, and especially for our own purification as God's holy people, people that he calls his saints, his set-apart ones for his glory. See, after all, we ourselves, as even believers, are not unlike those two retrievers who are drawn every day, every single day, into the muddied mess of this sinful world. Friends, if we're being honest with ourselves, you even may, as you've come into this place of worship, feel a little, quote-unquote, muddy even right now, here in this place of worship. Because you might be carrying, even in your own conscience, feelings of guilt and shame of your own sin from even this past week, as you may have said things or done things or thought things that are truly not fitting for those who claim the name of Christ. But the gospel message itself tells us that Jesus loves us far too much to keep us in this muddied estate. He refuses to abandon us. He goes after us, even in the midst of our muddy mess of our lives. See, he loves you far too much to let you go on wallowing out there in that mud. And in his goodness, he actually washes us thoroughly and lovingly brings us back into his home. But why? Why would he do this? Well, it is so that we might enjoy purified and grace-filled fellowship with him, as we ought to. And so if you catch nothing else this morning, from this message, please catch this. This is our main idea for the morning. That Jesus is zealous for your purification. And we'll see this in our text in three specific ways, in that he zealously cleansed the temple, but also the church, and finally, even us as individuals. So without further ado, let's go ahead and open up God's word now to the reading of God's word in John chapter 2. And we'll start here in verse 13. The word of God, which is forever faithful and true and given to us in love, says the following to us, dear friends. 
the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And so making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let's come to him now in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear this message. Father, we thank you that as you've given us your word, you have given us a window into your grace. We thank you, O Lord, that as we have heard your word read over us, we hear the very heart of you, our Father, over us. We thank you, O Lord, that as we approach your word, that the Spirit intercedes for us, even through uh, prayers within our own souls, praying before us and pleading over us the very blood of Jesus who cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. And so we ask, O Lord, that as we uh, attend now to the preaching of the word, that you, by your grace, would make us to know the smiles of our Father over us, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the kindness, the kind heart of Christ himself toward us. And so we ask, O God, that as we hear now your word, the preaching of it, that you would use this time to um, just cause us to be uh, renewed, cause our hearts to be rewired even, to crave the things that are of you, the things that are above where Christ is seated, and that your Holy Spirit would do the work ministering to our souls, convicting us where we need conviction, but also enlivening our faith, and our trust in our living Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us. Pray, O oh God, that you would use me as your messenger, as an instrument of mercy this morning to bless your people. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. <clears throat> well, friends, again, this morning I want us to focus on this main point from our passage that Jesus is indeed zealous for your purification. And we see this comforting truth first on display in how he zealously cleansed the temple there in John 2, verses 13 through 17. So I'd like to draw our attention to that for the first part of our message. Again, our passage, though, tells us this. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers doing what? Sitting there. 
What a mockery. Now, we don't have time to unpack the fuller context, sadly, of the Passover meal this morning, what this all meant by this week of Passover. But what is most important for us to pick up on this morning is that this meal, this Passover meal that the Jews were preparing for as they were worshiping God and ascending even the hill to worship with his people throughout that week, is that this meal was a gift from God's own hand given to God's own people in love. This Passover meal was an Old Testament sacrament, as our Westminster Confession calls it, a sacrament that he had established all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 in order to represent Christ in advance as the true Passover lamb. But not only did this Passover meal, given under the Old Covenant, represent Christ in advance of his coming, it also represented all of Christ's benefits to his people, even through the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And so here in John 2, we see the Passover as the occasion and the temple as the location of this week-long celebration of God's people. As we know, as we even see here in our text, there were believers who were being drawn to that city of Jerusalem from all across the known world into God's holy place of worship. And this was to be a place where not even a hint of false worship would ever be allowed. And so in John 2, verse 13, we immediately see that Jesus went into the temple. That is to say, the house of his father. You might be thinking, well, why exactly did Jesus have to go into the temple in the first place? I mean, he is God himself. Why did he have to go into the temple? I believe he did so for two key theological reasons. First of all, he went into the temple in order to perfectly obey the law of God on our behalf as true man. And secondly, he did so. He went into the temple in order to lead us in our worship. And so in this way, he proved himself to be both fully man and fully God, fully man in that he led the way for us and fulfilled the righteous commands and demands of the law, but also went there to intercede for us, to do it rightly where we all would fail. And so when Jesus entered the temple, we see as perfect, true God and man in the flesh, that he became furious. Furious. Well, why, why did he become furious? Well, he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship right there before his eyes. He saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men, even within the temple, leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide to worship God through sacrifice. But they had done so for the wrong reasons. See, many of them had opted to buy their animals for sacrifice not way ahead of time as the Old Testament had instructed them, but rather in the moment, even there within the temple walls. And they did so in order to basically appease the law of God on their own terms, not on God's terms. And so what happened? Well, the money changers ended up taking advantage of God's people because they didn't obey God rightly. The money changers took advantage of them not by setting up their shops outside the temple walls, but rather by replacing proper biblical worship inside of God's holy temple. And to add insult to injury, 
these money changers ended up making a mockery of not just God, but even of the people's worship by charging around four times the going rate of that day. Uh, Talk about inflation, which we're all facing in today's world, right? But because they were not fully obeying God's law, their worship, which was meant to be a holy act of offering, a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto God, had become adulterated. See, all for the cause of capital C convenience, the worshipers had fallen prey to a den of robbers. Now, these robbers had stolen the attention of the people then away from a true heart of brokenness, away from true contriteness, and they had replaced true repentance with a concern over just how many animals these people could buy in the moment in order to pay their dues out to God and look good in front of other people. These robbers had stolen the significance of grace and replaced it with a focus on trying to earn God's favor rather than looking to grace by name, Jesus Christ in the flesh, ultimately. These robbers had furthermore stolen the joy of the people's salvation then and exchanged that joy for dry, ritualistic religion, man-centered religion at that. And above all, these robbers sought to steal God's glory, the worst offense of them all, to steal God's glory. How? by replacing it in what had been a set-apart for holy use with noisy shops and stands and tables lined with coins from all around that world back then within the walls of God's own house. And so Jesus rightly became furious by this whole debacle. See, our God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with any other, nor will he let, and please catch this, He will not let his people be abused or extorted by these kinds of false worshipers within the house of God. So Jesus, in anger, righteous anger, threw down the gauntlet and fashioned a whip of cords to kick out the ones who had done evil to God's people, but also to protect the holy people of God. See, he used every necessary force to drive out the workers of evil from the holy place of God. He ended up pouring out their coins, as we read up here in the text. He overturned their tables, and he spoke clearly to all who heard, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But brothers and sisters, if we're being introspective, and rightfully so, with ourselves this morning, we are not all that unlike those money changers that Jesus kicked out in our sin. See, we may, not thinking of, we may not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of robbery, but truly every time that we choose our own personal pet comforts or concerns or conveniences even over worshiping God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are in effect robbing him. We rob ourselves even on top of that, of experiencing his joy, his goodness, and his grace when we do not worship God as we are commanded to. And so, friends, we need our worship to be purified each and every day. 
This brings us then to point number two, that Jesus not only zealously cleansed the literal temple right there in that time, but he actually zealously cleansed his church in effect. And we see this foreshadowed even in verses 18 through 22, that Jesus would one day zealously cleanse his church, you and I, men and women here together. And he did this, as we know later on in the Gospel of John, through his atoning death and bodily resurrection from the grave. Look with me, if you will, at what the Jews asked him in verse 18, after he had just kicked out the money changers. There was still a crowd of believers there. And Jesus turned his attention to them, as well as the others who were still there. He said this, what's, uh, they said this, rather, what sign do you show us for doing these things? That's what the Jews asked him. In other words, they were asking him, Jesus, won't you show us a symbol of your authority? This is a really appropriate question. Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, but if a cop were to ever pull you over on the highway, like let's say Highway 460 or something like that, you know that as he pulls you over, he's required to ask you one major question. Well, not really him so much, but you might be wondering, okay, like, where's your badge? Before you even pull me over, before you, you know, talk with me, what is your, what is your uh, role? Like, like, who gave you the authority? And you look for his badge. You think, okay, is this person legitimate or not, right? And we do well to ask that question. Okay, is this person an authority? Yes, they are. I better listen. Well, Joe Israelite was essentially asking the same thing of Jesus. He was basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, what is the basis of your authority? I mean, sure, we also want to worship God, but we couldn't have been the ones to kick out those money changers. And so who gave you the right to drive them out? Where is your badge, so to speak? Where is your symbol of authority? Before we put our faith in you and trust that you had the right to do this, will you show us that you truly are the one who has all power and glory and authority to do these very things? Will you show us that you were acting on behalf of the Lord God Almighty himself? Well, friends, how did Jesus answer them? What was the, the badge, so to speak, figuratively, that he showed them? Oh, I love how he answered them. He ended up prophesying. See, he didn't tell them straightly or, or too forwardly. He rather purposefully guised both his spiritual and kingly or magisterial authority in the most profound of all ways. He said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, at this point, the Jews were not so humble in how they responded to Jesus. In fact, they were pretty provoked at this point. Essentially, they were saying, who do you think you are? It took us 46 years to rebuild this temple from the ground up. Who are you to rebuild it and to tear it down? See, sadly, at this point, the Jews actually had missed the whole meaning and purpose behind what Jesus was actually saying. For we know, even from our text, that he was speaking about the temple of his own body, Right? For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The God who dwells with us, amongst us. And the Lamb of God who is himself the true and better temple. See, Jesus refused to then allow this picture of himself that was prefigured in the earthly temple there where they were at to become tainted with sin. It is why the writer to the Hebrews later on says in Scripture 
of Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Jesus here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. See, friends, Jesus didn't need to assume any degree of authority. It was already his. Now, J. Gerson Machen, who's one of my favorite heroes of the faith, he's the one who started uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, where Pastor Bob went to school back in the day, and where I'm working on my doctorate now as well, up in Philadelphia. J. Gerson Machen put it so well about 100 years ago by saying that Jesus actually claimed the right to legislate or write out the kingdom of God. He claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. To not just write the laws, but actually see them through. And so Jesus, even here in John 2, is proving to us this very truth, that he himself is the true prophet, priest, and king. And he would prove his divine authority in both his unjust death and bodily resurrection. So how is Jesus exactly our prophet, priest, and king? Well, friends, as true prophet, Jesus is the one who dictates God's truth. He speaks it over us. With authority. As true priests, Jesus is the one who cleanses God's people, who can actually purify them and remove our sin, every last one of them, from us. And he is also our true king who rules over each one of us with equity and fairness and justice and with zeal over us. Church, in his mercy, though, Jesus has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify us, his people, his church. See, just as the prophet of old, Moses, was consumed with the very worship of God's people upon returning from Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, that when he came back down from Mount Sinai and saw them worshiping the golden calf, he tore it down and instated God's law yet again for the good of his people. In the same way, Jesus, as the true and better temple, does not ever want his church to become enslaved by or captivated by even a hint of false worship in our midst. This is why you all here at Walker's Presbyterian joyfully sing God's own thoughts and songs back to his listening ears every Sunday. It is why I'm sure you all are so careful not to ever conform the content of your worship to the passing fads and the whims of this culture around us. It is why I can imagine that you treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified and do not dare replace this message of the gospel of Christ Jesus and him crucified with ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows as so many churches do these days. But in the positive, it is why we here lift up each other in fervent prayer every day as we've done even this morning. It is why we look to God and to God alone for him to answer us as we openly confess our sins and seek after his glory and for his will to be done here on earth and even in this church as it's already being done in heaven. And it is why we openly 
confess not only our sins, but even our struggles and our hurts and our pains with one another as we learn to trust one another more and more. Knowing that God himself is the one who cares for us more than we could ever even imagine. And friends, though I may not yet know you all personally by name, I can imagine, given your pursuit of honoring God in your worship, that it follows that yours is also a holy hunger for the very word of Christ. That's why you are gathered here under the reading of the word and the preaching of the word and the singing and praying to God every Sunday morning. I can imagine that yours is then a spiritual vitality that is actually to be spurred onward and upward to that glorious rest above. See, in effect, your worship, as we worship God rightly, as he commands us in his word, it becomes then in many ways a pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise unto our most high God every week when we actually worship him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all of this, this act of pleasing worship, of God-honoring worship, then becomes for us, in essence, a direct fulfillment of what Christ actually purchased and secured for us well in advance through his crucifixion and his atoning death. And the way that he even purified in advance, his bride for himself. In the words of one of my favorite professors up at Westminster in Philly, uh, Dr. Johnny Gibson, he once said this of the crucifixion, that it is from Christ's own riven side that he brought forth his bride. Brothers and sisters, do you see yourself as that precious bride of Christ whom he has purposefully created to be loved by him? His bride, whom he loves and whom he has actually cleansed and made clean and whole through the word of the gospel being poured out over you on a day-by-day basis. You might be wondering in this moment, why me, though? Why me? Why would I be the object of Christ's undying affection and love in the gospel? Why me? Why would Jesus, the very spotless and holy one, the perfect one, the only perfect one, lay down his life for someone like me, who I know to be a muddy or dirty sinner before his eyes otherwise? Well, friends, it was all, all for the joy set before Christ that he endured the cross for you, his beloved, despising his shame. See, his joy, his zeal, his burning passion is for the cleansing, the purifying of his church, the bride, you as a collective whole, whom he has now clothed in the garments of his own righteousness, and whom he looks at with undying, unwavering love. And so in John 2, we see that Jesus cleansed that literal temple 2,000 years ago. We also saw earlier that Jesus would eventually clean and purify his church through his death and resurrection. But friend, do you believe in your own heart of hearts that Jesus is still able and willing and in fact zealous to cleanse even you as an individual? We see this truth implicitly before us in verses 23 through 25 in our text. 
See, in Christ's zeal for every member of God's house, Jesus stands ready and eager even now to cleanse you and to wash you with the waters of baptism and the word of his truth as it is poured out over you. But please hear me correctly. This is not just an evangelistic call to come to Jesus for the first time. But of course, if that is you, if you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as Bill was praying earlier, this certainly is a time for you to cry out to God and to learn of Jesus and to know him as your Savior. But at a more deeper level, this really is an invitation for all of us even who do believe. For those of us who already are believers, a call to enjoy the ongoing experience of what we call as Christians sanctification as the gospel continues to wash over us and refresh us on a daily basis. Are we men and women who desire to see Christ and to know Christ wash us with this gospel truth daily? Friends, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers is that he neither requires nor expects any one of us to clean up our own selves in order to commune with him by prayer and the reading of his word. In fact, he knows that we ourselves are utterly unable to present ourselves as pure and holy before God apart from his imputed righteousness given to us, cloaking us and covering us. All that Jesus requires of us is to honestly confess our complete reliance upon him. For Jesus does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires, our coming New Year's resolutions. (laughs) He doesn't entrust himself to any of those things that fade away so quickly. Rather, he knows our own failed ability to clean up our own selves, as verse 24 implies. He knows the heart of man. He knows that we are unable to cleanse and purify ourselves, rather solely by faith in his name. By faith in his name, we are made clean and purified forever. Now, there's a powerful point of application in this gospel truth for you and me. Elsewhere later on in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that our own bodies then are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. Not literally in the sense of the old brick-and-mortar temple, but rather as temples, members, living stones, one of another. The temple of Christ, the body of Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit resides. The text later on in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, You are not your own. Rather, you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, you might be thinking, though, in doubtful response immediately. Yeah, I get that. But, but Rich, I don't feel clean. Yes, I believe in Christ, but I often wrestle with guilt or shame or sorrow or the things that weigh me down. And I don't feel clean before God. Perhaps you're thinking, I have desecrated my own body. I have entertained lustful thoughts. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves. How could Jesus ever actually want me? And so to you, dear Christian, struggling and 
striving Christian. I mean this sincerely. Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do when he bought you and purchased you and redeemed you upon the cross. And when in eternity past, he chose you in love, as Ephesians 1 tells us. And he proved that he wanted you, not just from a sense of duty, but an earnest desire, a zeal for you, by willfully dying for you upon the cross. See, his cleansing of the physical temple that we read of in John 2 pales in comparison to his ability and his willingness, his zeal even, to cleanse you and remove every last one of your sins as far as the east is from the west. So as we close, I want to turn your mind's eye back to that story about my dogs. Because who among us doesn't like a story about dogs, right? Thinking back to that story, though, in the midst of my sheer and utter panic over those dogs hopping all over the pure, white, clean couches of my friends, my dog Baxter quickly picked up on my uh, facial expressions, my nonverbal cues even, that I was angry over what he had done. And as soon as I saw his reaction, even in my little dog's face, As he began to sulk, my heart became full of pity over him. I couldn't help but just rush over to my little puppy and give him a giant hug. Mud and all, all over him. See, of course, Baxter is just a dog, and I I get that. He's just a dog. And for the record, in case our culture ever tells us this, dogs are not humans. (laughs) But you know what? He's my dog. And I care for that little guy. My love for even this little pet of mine compelled me to comfort him in the midst of his dirtiness and then subsequently to proceed to wash him thoroughly and then take care of his mess later. Friends, Jesus has a far greater love for you than just a dog. See, your dirtiness as a child of God as great as that dirtiness, dirtiness may be, is of no surprise to him. Whatever sin that you are thinking of, whatever thing that is just clinging to you even, he knows it full well. He knows your struggle. He knows the strivings day by day. And yet he is still zealous for your purification as the gospel of grace is used by him from that kingly throne in heaven to make inroads of grace into your lives on a day-by-day basis. He is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. He is still zealous for your joy in knowing him. He is still zealous for knowing the freedom, the liberty of a clean conscience before the Father. And he who is now raised from the dead will at the last raise you too with a pure, clean, blameless body forever incorruptible, all by means of his grace. And so friend, believe, believe the word which he speaks over each one of us who come to him by his gift of repentance and faith. His word that tells us this, I will 
I want to be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that yours truly is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We thank you, O Lord, that as we have come before you and have heard of your love over us, given to us in the gospel of grace, that we, the ruined sinners, can be restored to you. Lord, it makes us want to sing. It makes us want to even delight in you all the more. For, Lord, we are loved by you with an everlasting love. We thank you, O God, for being so abounding in mercy, so gracious to us, so loving toward us in Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that as we have been mindful of the things that seem to attach themselves to us like leeches, the sins and the sorrows alike, we thank you, O Lord, that they do not belong to us as Christians, for our identity is wrapped up in Christ, and his righteousness speaks over us, declaring us justified and pure and cleansed before the Father. And so we thank you for bringing these things to mind, and we ask, O Lord, of you that you would give us grace to see our sin and call it what it is and to repent of it on a daily basis, but also to find our true rest and our trust in you and in your arms of love. And so, Jesus, we ask all this in your holy name. Amen.